0: And Lord, as we transition into uh, week three of this church series, um, Lord, all of the theology involved, all of the deep learning, God, would you make us into students, would you make us into scholars during this series, Lord? Give us minds that can just um, just expand and soak in all that you would teach us about your church, uh, about ecclesiology, Lord. Um, Lord, those that even in the last two weeks have had little to no interest in the church. And this series has been uh, a bit of a thorn in the flesh. God, by the power of your spirit, would you awaken and quicken them and our church to deep passion and love for your bride, God. Lord, as there's um, confrontation this morning uh, to our worldview, Lord, we pray that we would be open-handed and humble and able to receive able to learn, able to grow, that we test all things according to your word, Lord. And Lord, that this church would just be modeled after the authority of the scriptures. Uh, We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Well, in this series, His Church, we pray that Christ will teach us about the nature of the church. Uh, The reason that we are committed to the church is because He is committed to the church. The reason that we love The church is because he loves the church and purchased the church with his own blood. In this series, we address certain stereotypes about the church, some good things, some bad things, um, whether they're things that we saw in a movie at one point that have always stuck with us, or something that we grew up with, or uh, as I have had, just certain aromas and you know, feelings in the morning trigger memories of lukewarmness in my life that are unattractive and, um, and just desire the Lord to take out all of these presuppositions and that we would look at what the scriptures have to say and be conformed to the word rather than vice versa. One person referred to the church as self-righteous people who gather together with acoustic guitars and banners, and uh, that's what most of us or some of us uh, have had in mind uh, most of our life, but as we examine the gospel and always come back to the gospel, we pray it would change our perspective about the church, even for those of you that have been wounded by the church, have deep hurts and cuts, that uh, God would bring healing, that he would bring humility, that he would grant you forgiveness and the ability to forgive the church and other churches that have wounded and hurt you, and uh, that by his grace there would be reconciliation Uh, throughout this study. Now, the word church in the New Testament never refers to a building. We want to combat that as much as possible in this series. And I shot myself in the foot by putting a picture of a church on the church image, right? Uh, But, you know, that was kind of just for teaching purposes. Um, uh, In the New Testament, though, church never refers to the structure or a place But it always refers to a people, uh, whether that's the total number of believers who have ever lived anywhere or a local group of those believers. Uh, In the New Testament, the word church or ecclesia also is used to refer to the group of people in a particular city or within a home group meeting or a house church. Uh, I want to give you, as we've looked in the last few weeks at Mark Driscoll and Gary Brashear's definition of the church, Um, I want to give you a fresh definition uh, to just increase our growing uh, through John Piper, where he says, I would define a local church like this. A local church is a group of baptized believers who meet regularly for worshiping God through Jesus Christ to be exhorted from the word of God and to celebrate the Lord's Supper under the guidance of duly appointed leaders. Bit of a fresh definition there for you, taken from the New Testament in its whole context. Uh, you remember last week, we looked at the purpose, the vision, the mission of the church, and we've divided it into three categories. That would be upreach, inreach, and outreach. All right, Upreach speaks of our worship to the Lord, our purpose, and our vision, and our mission, our chief end, and our aim to glorify him in everything that we do. Secondly, in refers to our loving one another, intentionally being part of the body of Christ, being together and ministering and serving to one another. And finally, as we'll get to later on in the series, outreach, uh, our witness, the commission, going out preaching the gospel, making disciples, bringing them in. And of course, in and outreach is all for the purpose of Upreach, all right, to that chief end of bringing glory to God and um, and uh, declaring His excellencies and His virtues and His saving works. And so, uh, this week we merge into the second purpose of the church: this inreach and um, and and all to glorify God, even to the world and to the host of heaven. Um, If we allow the New Testament to speak for itself, it becomes immediately obvious. Uh, that the majority of what the New Testament has to say about the church uh, is not only universal, but more specific in particular, it's to the local gatherings of the church. Even the occurrence of the use of the word ekklesia in the New Testament points to that. Of the 110 times that ekklesia is used in the New Testament, 90 of them are clear references to the local congregation. All right? Local congregation, such as Calvary Chapel of Crook County. Uh, Most of the New Testament books had been written to local churches. Three of the other books had been written to individuals who had the responsibility of leadership over over local churches, and historical record uh, shows us that the book of Acts clearly sets forth the establishment of the local church in city and community context. Uh, Another definition of the church I want to give you this morning uh, is uh, on the screen, and it's that a local church is a group of Christians who have intentionally united together for the expressed purpose of exercising New Testament Christianity for the glory of God and on behalf of one another and the world. So the point of all this, the point of these definitions, and the point of getting at the number of times that the word church is used in the context of the New Testament is to stress this, You cannot experience the Christianity of the New Testament by simply claiming to be a member solely of the universal church. As Mark Deaver says in his book, The Church, the Gospel Made Visible, he says, from the earliest of times, the local churches were congregations of specific, identifiable people. God has always intended for there to be a sharp, bright line to distinguish those who trust in him from those who do not. The lives of Christians together display visibly the gospel that they proclaim audibly. One contemporary writer expresses uh, the, the gathering and the being together in this fashion. Is it possible to have a vibrant spiritual life and successfully nurture our relationship with God apart from a local church? Is it just conventional wisdom that tells us we must be part of one? Is it possible to move closer to God and farther away from the church? Are there lots of alternatives to the church when it comes to our spiritual growth? Are those who forsake all church involvement truly blameless for that choice? The answer to all these questions, according to scripture, is a resounding no. Far from being one of the many options for the Christian, the church is the primary means through which God accomplishes his plans in the world. It is his ordained instrument for calling the lost to himself and the context in which he sanctifies those who are born into his family. Therefore, God expects and even demands a commitment to the church from everyone who claims to know him. Now, for anyone who is hard-headed towards that type of a statement or that type of words that are drawn from the New Testament, I'm sorry, but the burden of proof is on you to prove otherwise. To look at the scripture and to look at the whole context, not only of the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well, and God's plan for Israel. The New Testament never even hints at a thriving, influential kind of Christian experience apart from accountable fellowship with other Christians. You don't believe me? Let's look at a historical account from a reformer, John Calvin, who says this, The Lord esteems the communion of his church, So highly that he counts as traitor and apostate from Christianity anyone who arrogantly leaves any Christian society provided it cherishes the true ministry of the word and of sacraments. Man, that is in your face. That is saying you leave a body of Christ that is, remember last week, fulfilling the purpose of glorifying God in worship and in witness in the subject of God and declaring his marvelous deeds, his excellent virtues and salvation, some church fathers, and I think rightly so, have deemed that person traitor, have deemed that person apostate, one who has fallen away from the church. And if we would look at the word, if we would look at the New Testament, and in addition with a cherry on top, look at the church fathers who made strong statements like that and sacrificed their family and even their life in brutal death, then it would put to death all of this tragic nonsense of consumer Christianity and church hopping coupled with church shopping. Guys, look to the New Testament, how valuable and important the local congregation, the gathering of his bride is in a local context. Calvin went on to say, where the word of God is declared faithfully and the sacraments administered properly, you stay. You stay. Authentic Christianity in the New Testament always expresses itself in a local church setting. A specific group of people intentionally gathered together in an accountable fellowship that is being led by ordained leadership. Now I'm going to ask a question and we're going to refer back to it in the coming weeks. It's an important question. It's one that must be asked. It's very clear. It's designed. It's focused. It's specific. And it's answerable. Now we want our answer to be based upon the authority of the scriptures, not opinion, So when this question is asked, don't you dare go to, I feel this. Rather, please default to the word says this. The question is for those that meet two standards. First of all, You've confessed Jesus Christ as your savior. You are a genuine, authentic follower of Jesus Christ. You're born again. You've been regenerate. You have a new heart, a new mind, a new life in Christ. Praise God, you're a Christian. And secondly, You've identified yourself as a quote-unquote member of Calvary Chapel of Crook County. Now, we don't have a, a membership form that you have to sign or anything like that. The Lord hasn't led us to do that at this point in our church history. Uh, it can be a very helpful tool, and we've listened to some really great studies. But in Calvary Chapel of Crook County, the most we have is our fellowship directory, all right? And a lot of Calvary chapels, they say, hey, if you're in the directory, you're a member of the church, And of course, it goes deeper than that. But if you consider yourself to be a member of this church, this is your church. Or if you consider yourself, no, I'm more a part of that fellowship, you still need to ask yourself this question. Are you born again? Do you consider yourself a member of this local body? The question is this. Have it on a slide. What are your obligations to this local congregation? What are your obligations to this local congregation. As a member of this local church, what is your duty? What are your responsibilities? Is is there anything that is needed from you? Is there anything that's essential that you can offer uh, to the health and edification of the body for the glory of God? The words are precise, obligations, responsibility, and duty. Have you ever been asked that question before at a Sunday morning church service? It's pretty in your face. What are your obligations to this local congregation? It's not asked because there is so much consumerism and take from the church. Never any give or rarely any give that people view the church the way that they view restaurants. Quit providing a service the way I want it or a taste the way that I like it and I'm out of here. Sorry, buddy, you're on your own. Sorry, church, sorry, friends, you're on your own. And I see that uh, the New Testament scriptures are very specific to the obligation that's required of you. We'll get into that even more as the weeks go on. It's a direct question, and we pray as leadership over you, that you would take the question very personally and prayerfully and biblically. Charles Jefferson, in his book, The Building of the Church, which was a lecture, a a, a gathering together of lectures, a volume that was delivered before the Yale Divinity School back in 1910. And in Charles Jefferson's book, he said, many a sermon must be preached on the duties which Christians owe to another. What we want to touch on this morning that, that is your obligation, that is an obligation as part of this church, is that you must be part of a regular assembling. There must be a regular assembling of the local church and you must be a part of it. Now, a group of people that would come together only once a year cannot be deemed a local body. There are essential activities of the church which lose their meaning if they're not done corporately. And there are a lot of activities in the New Testament that must be done together. Let's look at the early church. Let's go beyond the reformers. Let's go to the beginning. Let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, when the church was young, when the church was a baby. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship, in the breaking of bread and of prayers, then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and good and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing with one accord, daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And so here in Acts chapter 2, we have a snapshot of the church's daily life. These are principles and the way they do things as, did things as the church then. And it's by these principles that the shape of our church is formed. Uh, John Stott says it's essential while we're studying Acts chapter 2 that we're realistic. We have a tendency to idealize or romanticize the early church. We look at it through tinted spectacles. We speak of it in whispers and and, uh, as if it had no blemishes. Then we miss the rivalries, the hypocrisies, immoralities, and heresies which troubled the first century church and still troubled the church today. So when we look at the early church, it's not as if there were no problems. After Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 42 through 47, we immediately see persecution arise and and Herod rising up to persecute the church. Uh, Peter and John on their way to the temple to pray, they're arrested and thrown into prison, told and commanded never to preach again. Uh, There were tough things going on. Acts chapter 5, not long after this, you have Ananias and Sapphira lying about their giving to the church and they're struck dead in Old Testament fashion and carried out and buried all right so it's not as if everything was unicorns and panda bears and gummy drops and kittens you know uh there was tough stuff but the model nonetheless remains uh that uh that we see in acts chapter 2 verse 42 now historically the non-christian roman official uh, pliny wrote to the Emperor Trajan about the year 112, and he referred to the fact that Christians met regularly before daybreak on the appointed day. Uh, The Didache, an early 2nd century document, reports Christians on the Lord's Day assembling. Justin Martyr, a guy who wrote in the middle of the 2nd century and was a martyr for the faith, described a common assembly on the first day of the week in which Christians came together for reading the scripture, Preaching, prayer, and collecting an offering. Uh, Hippolytus, hope, I was hoping I was going to say that right. On the early third century, referred to God's people assembling each Lord's day. So at the very beginning of the church, up through the centuries, we have Resurrection Sunday, the Sunday, the the first day of the week, becoming the day that we worship the Lord. So here at Calvary Chapel of Crook County, what's our vision? What's our agenda? What's our model? Our model, our vision, our agenda is to copy the book of Acts as much as possible, to, to emulate the book of Acts. As one man said, when the church was all that he wanted it to be, then he did all that he wanted to do. And so we strive to follow after the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 2, verse 42, we see something very simply put, very firstly put, they continued steadfastly. Don't ignore it. Underline it. Put little marks of rays of light around this phrase. Steadfastly continuing. It means that they were earnest towards, they were persevering, they were diligent To attend assiduously all of the exercises of the early church. American Standard Version says they devoted themselves continually and persistently to the following things continuing steadfastly in, first of all, the Apostles' doctrine. They studied and they looked at and they listened to and they dug into right teaching that was passed down from the apostles, from the 12 disciples. Guess what? That's something we do regularly and consistently and faithfully here, declaring the word of God, expounding upon the word of God. Because as uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all of the scriptures are inspired and breathed out by the Holy Spirit. They are profitable to us for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy Uh, Paul charges Timothy before God and the Lord Jesus Christ to preach the word and to preach it, whether it's in season or out of season, he is to convince from the word, rebuke from the word, exhort from the word with long suffering and teaching. Why? Why? The time will come, Paul goes on to say, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they have itching ears, they're going to heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So faithfully and regularly, we meet to expound the word of God and have the Holy Spirit apply it to our heart. We want to be conformed and shaped to the word, not have the word be conformed and shaped to our lives or our culture. As an elder, as a pastor, I I want to be like Paul in his farewell to the Ephesians in in Acts chapter 20 where he said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of the word of God. My goal before I die, the Lord takes me home, I want to preach you Genesis through Revelation as many times as I can. I don't want to shun to declare to you the whole counsel of the word of God. As A.W. Tozer says, whatever keeps me from the Bible is my enemy whatever harmless it may seem to be. And so in, the scripture, in, in this church, we dive into the word. Secondly, they continued steadfastly in fellowship. Now fellowship, you've heard it before, and you've heard it in the, in the secular world even. It's an overworked and undervalued term that means little more than friendliness or brotherliness or, or having a, a friendship. There's an Australian Methodist term that they'd call PSA, pleasant Sunday afternoons. And that was kind of the extent of fellowship uh, to the Australian Methodists. And and our version of that is potlucks and, and, you know, fellowship can't happen without donuts and coffee, right? That's it. And, And honestly, be honest, you come in here, there's donuts and coffee after church, and you would say the fellowship time was great, regardless of anything else that happened during that time. As John Stott says, common usage of the word fellowship describes something something subjective, an experience of warmth and security in each other's presence, as in, we had good fellowship together, but in biblical usage, the word koinonia, or fellowship, is not a subjective feeling at all, but an objective fact expressing what we share in together. So, whether we have donuts or not, or do soup on a Wednesday night together night, or the the essential things that we see here, are they happening in Acts chapter 2? And we could say, praise God, we had good fellowship this Sunday. Now, the word fellowship, it means, koinonia in the Greek, it means communion or community. It speaks of having things in common or literally sharing. And as you just jump down in your Bible there to verse 44, it says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they, verse 45, sold their possessions in good and divided them among all as anyone had need. You see the sharing that's happening there as they continued steadfastly in fellowship and communion and commonality and community. There's a sharing that happens. And praise God that continues to this day, uh, even in this church. But this, Fellowship, John tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, it was won and paid for by Jesus Christ's blood, and we truly have fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. It's something that's been paid for amongst us to the Lord. Fellowship with each other, communion, community with each other, in addition to community with the Lord. Matthew Henry says... When they withdrew from the unpleasant generation, the early church did not turn into hermits, but they were very intimate with one another and took all occasions to meet. Wherever you saw one disciple, you would see more like birds of a feather. They flock together. Good old Puritan, Matthew Henry, speaking up there. Now, it's interesting that Matthew Henry uses the word hermit, not kermit, in case you're wondering. Hermit, right? recluse, because I was recently at an an event with a family who had often been absent from church gatherings, and at this point had been truant for months, when a faithful church sister asked the wife of the absent family member, where have you been? I've been missing you. I leaned in, curious what the response would be. She said, we are just a bunch of hermits, And and I cringed in my heart. And I I say this in love to you, but the New Testament speaks nothing of Christians who are a bunch of hermits, all right? The New Testament speaks much of gathering together. And frankly, if you don't like gathering together, you are not gonna like heaven. When you read Revelation chapter five, verse eight through 13, you read of millions of Christians and billions and billions of angels, and guess what? Singing loudly. So pray The living God, to stoke in your heart, by his Holy Spirit, a love for others. That's what he's won us towards. Not to be hermits. It's unbiblical. It's sinful. And we'll get uh, get into that in the time to come. Jesus hasn't saved us, that we could be hermits. The New Testament model of Christians is not a model of inwardly, selfishly focused loners. In Acts chapter 2, they had fellowship with Christ, in Christ. Whether they were Jew, Greek, men, women, none of it mattered. They gathered, and the first thing they recognized is, we have Christ together. Now let's be honest, any kind of community feels awkward at first. You remember taking your kid to school for the first day. Awkward. You know, they got their backpack and everything. It's brand new. It's got the Avengers on it or Hello Kitty, you know, and they're walking into class and everyone's awkward and they don't want to go and they turn back and they grab your leg and you say, no, you have to go. It's necessary that you go. I'll go to jail if you're not in school. Go, go in there. Two weeks later, you can't get the kid to quit talking about their friend or the crush that they now have in their class. All right, I recently went to run club on Friday at Cecil Sly. And my kid wouldn't even be around me. He's running around the track. I'm like, I came to be with you. He's like, I didn't, you know, I'm out of here. I'm gonna go be with my friends. And so as we press into fellowship, the awkwardness will go away. Remember when you meet somebody new and it's a little bit awkward, but then you find out that one of their close friends is a very close friend that you had a long time ago. All of a sudden there's a bond that's struck and you're having all great kinds of great conversation. At least, man, they've got to have the same sense of humor that that guy did. I mean, oh man, we've got something in common and we'll talk about that individual. It's the same in Christ. We come together, it's awkward at first, we realize we're not here for each other in the first place. We're here about Jesus. You know Jesus? I know Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about holiness. Let's talk about the scriptures. It might be awkward, but when you remember the purpose and the commonality that we have, the communion, that it's in Christ and not in any other hobby or activity that we have, it's much easier to be comfortable around one another. You don't know what to talk about? Talk about Jesus. Talk about the scriptures. Challenge each other in in theology. But we have fellowship in the scripture. We have fellowship in the Father, in the Son, in the Spirit, in a future hope. We have fellowship in the gospel. We have fellowship in suffering together. We have fellowship in abilities and fellowship in our giftings. We have fellowship in our needs. And much of the material in the epistles that anybody would write in the New Testament had the working out of this common life. The authors would encourage others to interact in a way that brings glory to God and reflects their shared status as Christ followers, Christ disciples, Christ friends. Christianity is a very corporate matter. And the Christian life can be fully realized only in relationship To others, one of the most fundamental duties in the Christian faith. What is your obligation? It's the same as anybody else that's ever named themselves a Christian. It's to the congregation. And you have a duty to regularly attend the gatherings of the congregation. It's New Testament, people. It's scriptural. All right? I wouldn't put anything on you that's not given as a blessing, not a burden, by the Holy Spirit inspiring the New Testament. We see they continued steadfastly in breaking of bread in the Lord's Supper. Matthew Henry said, the Lord's Supper is a sermon to the eye. Because every time you take it, you proclaim the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And you look to his coming. And in a few weeks, we're going to look at what communion is and what baptism is. What are these ordinances that we've been commanded to continue? They continued in prayer. And I want to focus for a minute in Prayer is is it is it is coupled with this gathering aspect. All right. Uh pr- the, the, the church is a praying community, not only in the prayer closet, but together, we gather together. And it's just important as studying the scriptures. We have major issues with surrendering our surrendering ourselves and coming before the Lord. And as we said last week. We are a theocentric community. We are a God-centered community. We are a Christ-centered community. One way that you know that you're still Christ-centered is when you're on your face as a church together, crying out to Jesus for your church. It's when you stop praying together that you've begun to take the matter in your own hands. You become self-sufficient and less and less God-centered. Galatians 3.3, Paul tells the Galatians how foolish it is, and actually they've been bewitched. And that they began in faith and they began in the power of the Holy Spirit and yet they want to continue on in their own flesh. It's wickedness and it's foolishness. And we will decline as a church if prayer is pushed aside. We will decline as a church if corporate prayer is pushed aside. The teachers and the preachers know that Acts 2.42 isn't referring to private prayer, but prayer meetings and prayer services. There's a formal time to pray, and there's an informal time to pray. Peter and John went in Acts chapter 3 to the temple. Why? It was the hour of prayer. Prayer formally going in to take that time it's scheduled it's together seeking the lord and crying out to the lord and interceding from the lord to the lord for the body as the early church had both a public and private prayer life so should the modern church not only private but also public and one opportunity that that's been made available for you in this church is Thursday nights at the Pulse. Not the only time where corporate prayer happens, but probably the longest time that corporate prayer happens, and the biggest place that corporate prayer happens. And so, I encourage you if you are not in, in part, of, it's it's part of the early church. We we learn from the early church, and so we encourage you to come out at uh, from six to seven thirty at the Pulse on Thursday nights. We're told to pray without ceasing and to continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant and open-eyed in it with thanksgiving. Wayne Grudem in his book, Systematic Theology, said if we were really convicted that prayer changed, or excuse me, if we were really convinced that prayer changed the way that God acts and that God does bring about remarkable changes in the world in response to prayer as scripture readily states he does, then we would pray much more than we do. And if we do not pray, if we pray little, It is probably because we do not really believe prayer accomplishes much at all. And maybe the Lord would convict you right now and you be honest before Him. The reason I do not go to corporate prayer is I believe it accomplishes very little. You are being deceived by the enemy. And I'm not condemning you if you don't come to the Pulse, that's not the only venue that I'm speaking of. Pray together. Stop your conversation in the car and pray together. Stop on the street or don't stop, but keep praying together. Pray corporately. Alistair Begg said, so often churches discover that people aren't up to a corporate prayer meeting. It takes a tremendous commitment to do it. They discover people would be happier without it, and so they just let it go. It is so possible to do this in relationship to prayer, and that would be a great mistake. And so in this church series. Feel the emphasis from the scriptures and the preachers and the prophets on how important prayer is in this body. In verse 46 of Acts chapter 2, they continued daily in one accord or in unity in the temple. In verse 47, they praised God and had favor with all the people. These are things that we want to continue daily. We want to praise God. In verse 7, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Remember in Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. First week we studied that. And it was there that Peter, in the first mentioning of the church ever in the New Testament, Jesus says, it's my church, I own it, and who does the building? Jesus does. I'm not Jesus, that'd be Jesus, okay. Jesus does the building. And so in Acts chapter 2 verse 47, who added to the church daily? Jesus, the Lord did. He added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now you need to note that he didn't add people to the church without saving them nor did he save them without what? Adding them to the church. So we move on to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, where there's another strong exhortation from, we don't know the author, might be Apollos, it might be the Apostle Paul. But it says, let us consider one another, and we're going to look at that phrase, consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. We're going to look at that next week. But it goes on to say, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. I hope you're getting the corporateness of it all. One another. And so much the more as you see the day coming. And so we need to consider one another. That's give careful attention to one another. I'm, I'm careful not to preach too much what would be next week's bible study in order to stir up stimulate and provoke good works and law the ministry ministry of provoking one another in a good biblical hebrew type way necessitates consistent togetherness how else are you going to consider one another and stir one another up towards love and good works if you're by yourself all the time it's not going to happen And in verse 25, we say, he says that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Forsake means, ESV version, neglecting. And think of animals when you neglect them. How do they look? You know, you don't feed your horse. You don't give him the treatment. You don't put shoes on his feet. You don't water him. You know, you don't groom him with the curry comb. How does he look? Long in the tooth. Am I right? And that is what you look like as a Christian. That's what the church locally looks like as, as a local congregation. If people are neglecting that, we're going to look so unhealthy. We're going to have the the state knocking on our door, arresting us, and sending our church off to the habitat. And Ben, okay, sorry, just, just trying to couple the, you know, don't neglect the assembling of yourself together. NIV says, giving up. Don't give up. The assembling of ourselves together, the meeting together. We need to make sure that we are consistently part of the scheduled meetings of the church. This is basic Christianity that's been thrown out in the trash. And the reason that it strikes us odd is because we've come to see the church as just an option, just an appendage, just an activity, another activity among all the other activities that we've got going on in our life. This is not biblical. There is a meeting together. There's a priority in our life of gathering together. And that is why we schedule these meetings. As Acts chapter 20 says, it was on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. Ignatius, an early church father, says when you frequently and in numbers meet together, the powers of Satan are overthrown and his mischief is neutralized by your like-mindedness in the faith. Everybody knows that as we come together to do the Acts 2.42, that the enemy is crushed. That there is battle that is done. And we need this type of community. You need this type of community. By design, you need this type of community. Genesis chapter 2.18, the Lord said to the Lord in his Trinitarian state, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Did you catch that second chapter in the whole book of the Bible? In, in the whole of the Bible? It is not good that you are alone and you think it is. It's not. Proverbs 18.1 says, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire and rages against all wise judgment. You show me someone that is not in consistent meetings and is always by him or herself and I will show you someone who wants to do what they want to do and doesn't want to hear what the word of God has to say about it or what his brothers would say in exhort an exhortion to him. Exhortation to him. It's biblical. You're isolating yourself from fellowship and from friends and from people that love you and care enough about you that they'll speak words of truth and confront you in things. You're seeking your own desire. You're raging against wise judgment. Our need for community is shown in our very Creator. It's Trinitarian, it's after the designer. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they, they, there's unity, and yet there's distinctness, and they have fellowship together before the world was even created. In John chapter 17, 21, Jesus is praying, and he says that all those who follow me, that all those who believe that they would be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may, uh, may believe that you sent me. Jesus in his prayer before the cross prayed for unity that is shown in gathering. The same unity, the same fellowship that Jesus had with the Father and the Spirit before the world ever was. You can read the rest of the prayer on your own time. And so don't forsake, don't give up the assembling and the meeting. It speaks of scheduled meeting times. And then it says, as is the manner of some, or the habit of some, or the custom of some. At this point in church history, it was like 60 AD, Jesus had been gone for 30 years, Paul the Apostle's still on the scene. By this point already, it seems to, the church seems to have had some defections from the ranks, People were already giving up fellowship together. They were neglecting it. It had become their custom. And for some of that, they may have been because of persecution from the Romans. You know, if the Romans catch us meeting, they're going to chop off our head, so it just seems a lot more convenient to not meet today. For others, they were being pressured, pressured and ostracized from the Jewish community. Others were intimidated by the Jewish machine, the Jewish synagogues. They were being persecuted. Other people had given up the assembling and the meeting times because they had business engagement. Other people were simply just lazy. And there's no mention of why, but those probably all contributed to the the problem in some way. And the same thing is true for us today. There are people who feel they don't need the church is a very arrogant feeling. There are people that see the Lord's Day as a good opportunity to make money. There are some who are simply lazy. Some see Sunday as just another day to play. It makes for a longer weekend when we skip church. If I have nothing else going on, Rory, I'll be there. But I'm just letting you know, something's probably going to come up. And I know what you're thinking because I've thought it myself before. You're thinking, Rory, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And I would say, wrong. You have to go to church to be a New Testament Christian. You do not have to go to church to become a Christian, but to continue in the faith, you must be part of the local congregation. In, Ignatius, or excuse me, in Augustine's word and in Crucius' word, sorry, early church, Bohemian father, whatever, both of them said very similarly, no one can have the church for his father unless he has the church for his mother. We're not saved by works, amen. We are saved by grace through faith. And yet James adds to that by saying faith without works is dead. And one of the works that is a fruit of being saved, it's a joyful response to what Jesus has done, is that we will gather together and worship Him together. And as we'll see next week, we're going to love on one another and we're going to serve one another. We're not talking about someone whose job says that they can't be in fellowship on a Sunday. We don't have some sort of Sabbath rule or Sabbath law, we're under the new covenant. But it's not a have-to thing. It's a get-to thing. If you would ask the question in your heart, do I have to show up to church? It shows something that's wrong in your heart. And as I've said before, if a woman came up to me and said, Rory, how much do I have to kiss my baby? First thing you'd think is, something is wrong. Something is wrong with this lady. There's a heart issue here. And the same thing is true if you in your heart, Praise God, you can be honest before the Lord today, would say, do I really have to go this Sunday, this Wednesday night? Do I have to go to 242 together? Do I have to go to a core group? Do I have to go to youth group? When a person so readily snaps up every opportunity to do something other than meet with God's people, it says something about that person that you have yet to esteem God's privileges to you and your consequent obligation to his people. If you're somebody that says, Rory, just tell me what I have to do. Well, we as elders would say, man, sad heart for sure. We pray for your heart. But we would recommend as overseers of you that we'll give an account for your souls. Hebrews chapter uh, 13 verse 17 says, as Acts chapter 20 says, as 1 Peter chapter 5 says, we would say, that we as your shepherds would desire that you be with us and participate in the Lord's Day on Sundays. It's necessary. You need to have the word washed over you. You need to be part of the visible gospel. It's necessary. And we would say, join us. We would say, you need to be with us on Wednesday night. You need to be with us at 242 gatherings, at the 242 together. We would say that a core group should be a priority for you. And those of you that are youthful age, that youth group should be a priority for you. For you as parents, that you would make youth group a priority for your kids. And we would say it would benefit you greatly to participate in a core group or in the prayer ministry of the church, to come to the pulse or to find a way to serve and to use your gifts. More of that in the time to come. When we have a week given over as a church for fasting and prayer, we would say, be at it. In New Testament fashion, be at it. Not because you have to, but because we get to in response to what God has done for us. John Stott said, I do not think it is an exaggeration to say that small groups, Christian families of fellowship groups, are indispensable for growth into spiritual maturity. Many famous movements of the Spirit of God have either begun or expressed themselves in the intimacy of such fellowship. Earlier before that, he said, it's hard to get to know everybody in this this, uh, giant setting Right on a Sunday morning. It's more of an aggregation than a congregation, Stott said. So that's why it's so good to get in the little groups where we can become friends and intimately associate with one another and hold each other accountable and be praying for one another during the week. To neglect the assembling together might end in an apostasy at last. And as Calvin reflected, it may be the sign of a traitor or of apostate or one who has fallen away. We're wrapping up here. One professor of theology remarked, an inactive church member is a contradiction in terms. If we do not cherish the church and view membership as a great privilege, we need to question if we are truly part of the church. We cannot expect to meet the church triumphant in glory if we are not militant on earth. Freelance or non-participatory Christianity negates the entire concept of the church as a corporate witness of redeemed fellowship. Are you an inactive church member of Calvary Chapel of Crick County? You're a contradiction of terms. And so, as you're confronted today with so much, by grace, repent. Repent of the poor understanding of the church I have had to in the last few weeks. Join me. (laughs) Humble yourself. Is there anything that's not biblical? Push your opinions aside and repent. Join me and join others who are repenting. Of poor ecclesiology. Why don't we have the worship team come on up? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book *Life Together*, Dietrich was murdered by the Nazis uh, the day of uh, the day before I think it was um, Hitler committed suicide. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book *Life Together* when he talks about the glory and privilege of knowing another Christian, he says, "Therefore, let him." who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians, praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare, it is grace, grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. And so as we come, oh, oh, there it is. Like No communion. Okay, it's right in front of me, couldn't see it. As we come to the communion table, as we close in song, let's glorify God if you've ever been part of Christian community. And if you want to repent of not being part of Christian community, grab the cup, grab the bread. And I would encourage you, go back to your chair and take a knee. Do what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the guy who was slaughtered for Christ, who understood the value of the church. And so maybe you'll take a knee up here. Maybe you'll just go to your seat or maybe you'll go to the back. It's okay, you don't have to. But If the Lord would move you to take a knee and shout out from the bottom of your heart, God, it is grace. It's because of what you've done on the cross. Shedding your blood, breaking your body. It's grace, nothing but grace that allows us to live in community with Christian brethren. Lord, we repent today. Lord, I think the reason I'm so passionate is because I've had just you confront me so many times this week and in the last few weeks. And and Lord, I know that these words are confrontational and make us uncomfortable. But Lord, I believe it's not because you're wrong, but it's because we need to be corrected. And Lord, your word tells us that you correct those that you love. So God, may we just sense your love here in this place. That if you didn't love us, you'd let us continue on with a poor view of your bride, the church. So Lord, we repent. We declare that it is grace, grace, nothing but grace that allows us to be part of the gathering together of the brethren. And by your spirit, do a work in this place. As John Stott said, of how many revivals began through the assembling together, even of small groups, God. We pray that over our 242 groups and our core groups and our prayer meetings. Lord, that you would spark a flame that would light this city on revival, Lord. For your glory, God, the chief end of gathering together is that you would be glorified and worshiped. And so we do that right now.